This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Resma Menicum is a healer, therapist, and a licensed clinical social worker, renowned for his bestseller, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma, and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. Resma is the originator and key advocate of somatic abolitionism, an embodied anti-racist practice of living and culture building. In this episode, CIIS Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Rachel Bryant, has a transformative conversation with Resma about how we can heal the historical and racialized trauma we carry in our bodies and our souls. This episode was recorded during a live online event on February 10th, 2023. You can also watch it on the CIIS Public Programs YouTube channel. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hello, and welcome everyone in the audience. We can't see you, but we know you're there. And <laughs> thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today, Resma. I can't wait to get into it just in no, the pre-program. You know, we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna go there. That's you it. know, my pleasure, sis. Yes, I I want to start with a little bit about you because your background is so interesting. In addition to the things we heard in your bio, uh, you're a therapist. You've been a radio show host. I don't know. I heard in the bio that you also have been a counselor in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your personal and professional experiences have led you to have this focus on racialized trauma in the body. Like, why is that important to you personally? Yeah. Um, You know, uh, the, 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 the book, My Grandmother's Hands, actually... You know, it is a culmination. It is it is as much me and my grandmother and blackness and navigating white body supreme. Like it's all of that is in there. And so what made um what kind of created the kind of critical mass, the energy that it took for that book to actually come out of me was both living in the black body as well as um I think one of the things that kicked it to a zenith was some of my work over in Afghanistan and um and and that that actually put me in a place where I had to contend with my own um personal lived experience around trauma and that came together with my historical experience with trauma my intergenerational experience with trauma and my people's intergenerational experience with trauma as well as my persistent um and pervasive uh, institutional experience with trauma. And so uh, all of my experiences actually helped to kind of facilitate uh, from an energetic place, facilitate the emergence of that book, because had it not been for that book, I probably, you know, with my own trauma, probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And prior to that turning point, you mentioned in Afghanistan, when that became very alive for you, did you have a background or a training in mm-hmm. somatic therapy? Yeah, oh, yeah. I had, yeah, I had a training in, in that. I also was a therapist before that. Um, and uh, But it's one thing, you know, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do the work in Afghanistan is because it gave me a chance to actually practice in a war zone and do things that I had never done before and, and figure this out and basically just just kind of dove into deep end and, and had to figure out my, my job was to put together all um to put together a a traumatic response uh for all 53 bases in southern Afghanistan um and so whenever there was and, and it was primarily for civilian contractors the military already had ways of addressing you know trauma and 
um, and injury and moral injury, but the but the military contractors did not um, uh, before I came on contractor. So my job was to create the whole strategy for how to address when somebody's you know walked into somebody who suicided or there's been you know a, a, a rocket garage for 24 hours on a base or something like that um and so that but in the meantime or, or while i was doing that i was also being impacted by the same trauma so mm-hmm. you know you mentioned you wanted to go there so that you could obviously use your healing skills with the folks you were charged with working with, but you called it a war zone. It was a war zone. You just described that. Many American cities are war zones. I grew up in East Oakland during the great crack Holocaust, and I won't call it anything else. I don't know where you grew up. You grew up. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So did you find any parallels? Oh, in yeah. the experiences oh, yeah. in Afghanistan and the war zone that many Black and Indigenous bodies and yeah. other bodies experience right here at home? And what yeah. were those? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. That, that, I've never, people, people who, I've interviewed, who have interviewed me before um, ask me questions, but, but they don't get at really the, the depth of what the question you just asked. And it is that that there is a parallel, right? Like what what helped me actually write the book was was the parallels became so acute in terms of what black bodies and indigenous bodies experience on this land, right? And have experienced since we since some of us since we were since our ancestors were born here and some of us were trafficked here, right? And um and I think, I think, I think, you know, the parallels for me was the, were things like the intensity of the experience made it so override is the first thing you go to in order to survive, right? And that override can actually, over time, be, time decontextualizes trauma. I tell people this all the time. And one of the first pieces you have to understand is that the march of time will decontextualize it if there is, number one, no repair and no remembrance that the trauma happened, right? And so what happens in people is that as time marches forward, as the decontextualization happened, as there is no remembrance for what the traumas, trauma or traumas are, what begins to happen is that people become organized around the survival of the trauma and they get organized around the override and the strategies to get through the trauma. And trauma decontextualized over time and a person can look like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family over time can look like family traits. Trauma decontextualizing the people can look like culture. If you don't examine and inquire and re and remember, um, you start to begin to place the defect in you. You start to be the 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 reframe of the energy, the thwarting energy of trauma starts to look like um, mental health issues. Starts to look like uh, 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 or or can look like. Um, lifestyle choices, and you know what I mean, and stuff like that. When in actuality, is people is how people have have organized themselves around the trauma, and then the t- march of time decontextualizes. Mm-hmm. So, would you say your work uh, as a clinician and in your writing is to help us contextualize our absolutely trauma? okay? That, that's most that's most of the work, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the work is sitting with black and brown and indigenous bodies and and white bodies and from a particular vantage point, um, but working with them individually and communally to help them um, not only identify the trauma, but also contextualize the resource that's available to them, right? And, and because a lot of times one, one of the primary tenets of trauma is miss, right? This idea that you can't move, that if you move one way, there's horror. If you move the other way, there's terror, 
right? And so people people have a tendency to have this stuck quality, energetic quality that's not just a cognition, but is also an embodiment, right? Um, and so and so uh, a large part of my work is contextualizing the things that they see as defect, contextualizing it as protection as opposed to as opposed to defect, protect as opposed to defect. Mm-hmm. And I think you really did that in my grandmother's hands. And oh, thank you, it felt like thank such you. an affirmation and, and a, almost a relief. I'm not crazy. Like there's mm-hmm. a reason why I think and feel the way that I do um, in a black and indigenous body. And it was affirming. Right. Yes. I want to get to your new book because okay. <laughs> that did something to me. <laughs> And I want to I want to just start yeah. with this because I think it takes yeah. a particular kind of badass to start a book like this. <laughs> to all Americans who hope to incite a civil war, we see you. We know your plans. We will be ready to defend ourselves and what this country could be against you. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. book activated for me and maybe mm-hmm. many of your readers who've had a you know audience members who've had a chance to look at it. It's almost like it just activated all the trauma that you had helped settle in the previous book. It took several many chapters to settle into the body exercises, and I can see now that it's not a one and done. Yes. Tell me why this book? Why now? Yeah, they, you know they're completely different in some ways. So, so when I finished the book, I gave it. There's a, a good friend of mine. Uh, sister, I had sent her, uh, I sent her the book and I said, before I send this to anybody, I want you to read it. Like, just read it and then, you know, hit me back. Just tell me what you think and stuff like that. And so it took her about a, about two months and she read it and I get a phone call and, and get on the call and I said, hey, she said, hey, brother. <laughs> I, yes. said, I, said, I said, I said, what you think? And she took a long time. She was like, she said, brother. First of all, I love the book, she said, but here she goes, can I use an analogy? I said, yeah. She said, my grandmother's hands felt like a warm blanket and this one and this book feels like a dark alley. <laughs> and 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 I could not have phrased that any better. That was mm-hmm. that's exactly what I wanted it to be, because I think when you watch. So I had originally started uh, instead of Quaker. So so Quaking of America. That book came came. I, so the first, I was writing another book before I started writing Quaking of America. I actually was writing a book called Our Grandchildren's Souls. It was going to be talking about the legacy of creating a um, a uh, a. Um, living embodied anti-racist culture and infrastructure, right? And then January 6th happened, sis. When January 6th happened, I'm sitting there reading and, and editing part part of uh, part of uh, the first book, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching these fools um, um, go to the Capitol, right? And I'm and, and 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 this is at the same time that I'm writing this book, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching. I'm saying, okay. Couple, couple hundred showing up. Okay, okay, that's interesting. You know, blah blah blah, right? Then a little while later, they you see the news coverage again, and there's more there. And I'm like, okay, all right, all right. Then a little while later, you see there's more there, and now they're walking around with AR-15s, and now they got weapons. And I'm saying, okay. Uh, ain't nobody stopping nobody. Like nobody's even asking for uh, ID. Uh, nobody's like stopping the car and and or pulling them over and said, you know, what do you are you supposed to be carrying that weapon? And right, n- nobody's doing right. anything. Right. And I'm saying, okay. And then I start seeing what I call the symbols, the symbols of our feral past. Right. Um, then I start seeing the nooses. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Then I start seeing them erecting the gallows, right? 
Then I start seeing the Auschwitz signs. Then I start seeing the swastikas. Then I start seeing the 3%, right? I'm seeing all of this stuff. Sir. And I'm sitting here saying, ain't nobody stopped. Like nobody's, no, like nothing's happening. Then they start kicking out the windows and they start kicking out the doors and they start walking in the halls and pissing on stuff and, and, and beating the hell out of over a hundred police officers. Here's the thing. As I'm watching this, I'm saying the way that white bodies have currency that they use showed up in that situation, in that you had people that, that beat the hell out of police officers and not, and most of those police officers never unholstered their weapon. That's when I said I can't write, I can't finish writing this book. I have to I have to write on this because I know America will watch this and 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 not have any concept or or context for how to see this. And so I called my agent and called my um called my uh publisher. I called my agent first and I said, You're gonna be pissed at me. I said, I'm not, I'm, I can't write this. I can't write this other book. I said, we have to write this book. And he goes, I would, he says, Resma, I was, I'm so glad you're saying this. I'm so, he said, whatever, he said, if the publisher don't want to continue on with this, they don't have to believe me, we can get somebody else to publish this book. And so that's how it happened. It was that, it was just that. And I wanted to give context to the feralness of the white body and the currency of the white body. And I want to give people some some ways of, of kind of mooring themselves as they watched what they were watching. So that's how the book came about. Yeah, I can't help but think in listening to that and witnessing that live when it was happening, what a different response it would have been if it would have been you and I and our family oh. members and friends Come there, on. you know, like even white bodies who would have been there with us if the majority been, of folks have been bodies of culture, it would have been a much different story. I said, I said, could you imagine if that hadn't been 6,000 indigenous bodies? 6,000 black, see this is, and, I, and I'm saying bodies in particular because people sometimes when I'm talking, they think I'm saying identity. I'm not talking about identity. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about like my, my organizing rubric sibling is that from my work and the way that I move is that um, we live in a structure, we live in a system by which the white body deems and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. If you don't understand that, everything else will confuse you about what you're seeing and what you're experiencing, what you're noticing right in front of your eyes. And so, and so when I think about the white body and that pigmentocracy that got, that, that got set up, right, that, and it continues to be nurtured, that the white body being the standard of humanness and every other body being deviant from the standard is an operating structure. Anti-blackness and indigenous invisibility is part of the operation and the operational structure. I couldn't imagine if 6,000 black bodies showed up anywhere in America with AR-15s and not and, and refusing to allow um, anybody to question them about it. What we would have seen if that had if that had been black people, we already know because we understand the pigmentocracy, we understand the hierarchy, and we understand that the white body has has currency that, that that bodies of culture in general and and in black and indigenous bodies specifically do not have mm -hmm. and with that you distinguish that our approach to healing and recognizing what's in our bodies is also drawn by the, some of those identities and and right. embodiments could you say right. more about that Absolutely. Because so, at the so, beginning, I said, can we do some of your exercises? You were like, no, that's not cool. And so explain why, <laughs> right? Yeah. Sibling, I'm, I'm very, 
I my whole thing because because I'm I'm a social worker because I've been a clinical therapist for a while because I do consider myself somebody that is um, I, I look at myself rather than being an academic scholar I really consider myself to be a communal scholar and mm-hmm. and I want to nurture mm-hmm. communal scholarship um, I believe communal scholarship actually impacts academic scholarship in 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 a in a in a in a way that people i don't believe gives enough credit um i believe that there are people outside of the institution um of academia that write and do and speak and say things that academia ends up quantifying and using to uh uh to to act like they're the ones that develop these pieces, right? Especially when it comes to, to like things where we where we want to talk about more inclusiveness or equitable treatment of people. M- many times, the the communal scholarship that's going out in the communities actually pushes in to academia. My book is a classic example, yes. right? And, 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 but we don't we don't think about the outside inside strategy we just say well you know resmond wrote this book and we can use it in our classrooms and i'm simply i'm saying that that scholarship that's in my book came from elders that nurtured me along the way came from people that that love me talking to me and chastising me and holding me and 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 saying no we can reclaim this and that and, that. and now is being adapted you know in academia and so and so for me uh, I forgot your question again. Say, you know, maybe we'll of? come back to that because I want to stay right. on the thread of the academy and this right. gap between communal knowledge and the academy. I think we right. are at a particular political time and attack on education in general. And some of that mm-hmm. is directed toward higher ed, but some of it mm-hmm. impacts all of education. Um, and it seems like right now, though, all of the um, critical anything considered critical race theory is trying is being systematically dismantled. There's a particular focus on black and transgender bodies in the most recent headlines, and I wonder if you have comments on Absolutely. that and how and any suggestions for how we interrupt that and counter that. I have some ideas too that I yeah. So so you know there's this big uproar about CRT and and and. Um, and you know we shouldn't be teaching our kids to hate each other and stuff like that. I think it's very interesting that it's even couched in that way mm-hmm, that that, mm-hmm. um, that CRT is. And CRT is is an advanced is advanced level uh, uh, work and scholarship at university. There's nothing people don't get this in grade school, right? But even if the even if it was, I think I think it really obscures the actual. Uh, argument here. The real uh, the thing that I find more interesting, rather than uh, other than CRT, is NCRT, non-critical race theory. Right? <laughs> non-critical race theory is the prevailing thought of this country. Right? This the, this country does not want to consider race or racialization as as an impacting structure by which we're operating it, right? Mm -hmm. The whole push has always been about not being, not having a critical lens by which we look at race, right? And, and, and so when, when, when black, brown, and indigenous people say, you know what, it is a particular gaslighting move when you say to a somebody housed in a brown black or indigenous body that race doesn't matter and that it should not matter it's it has always mattered because 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 the engine of it and the development of it springs out of the notion of that the white body is the standard and every other body is a deviance from the standard. And so, and, and, and that has been woven in and around and through academics, through psychology, through religiosity, through all, all of the mechanisms and institutions, that notion that the white body and the white standard is what should be the prevailing thought of, of, of whatever institution you're in, that goes unquestioned because it becomes decontextualized as standard. And so for me, I think one of the things that academia has to begin to do, number one, 
is really begin to make more really clear choices around which side it's on, right? Academia is so used to straddling um, the side of, or, or, or pretending that they're straddling the side of liberation and straddling the side of not making people angry, <laughs> right? It's like, like, like my liberation, the liberation of Black people um, is going to make the majority of people in this country angry because it means that there needs to be redress. And this country does not want to read You start like at the beginning, we talked about, you know, there was a land acknowledgement, right? And, I, and there was a couple pieces. Notice that we talk about, and we, we become very comfortable in academia talking about land acknowledgement mm -hmm. and not, not land back, not, not who benefits from the land that was stolen, through genocidal means and feral means, and that and that there are still indigenous people that are still being impacted. Let's, I, you know, I have a, a indigenous sister of mine named Jin Lee, and she says, "Brother, you realize this: less than seven percent of what we talk about America and Canada, less than seven percent of the population of North America." is indigenous. Now just think about what I just said. Less than 7% of the populations of North America are indigenous people. And we never, and so when we do these land backs and, the, and these, or these land acknowledgements, we never talk about the feral impact of what it means to be genocided off a of land that you have lived on for thousands of years. We never talk about how that, how the notion of blood and, and murder and brutalization actually impacts immigrants coming here because there is an, uh, there is an unrooting and a derooting that comes when you're an immigrant. Plus you, you, your feet are on land that in which people have been genocided off of, which creates another layer of, of uh, disequilibrium um, in terms of energy and stuff like that. And so for me, I think that, the, that, 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 that if, academic, if academia says that we believe in ushering in a living, embodied, anti-racist culture and infrastructure. That means that academia has to be about the business of creating a container that can actually tolerate dealing with the 400 years, 500 years of charge that is associated with race. And DEI is not gonna get there. Mm -hmm. It simply is, it does not, it is not robust enough to be able to deal with that 400 years of charge. Mm -hmm. Then how do we deal with it? I you mean, in general. Create, mm -hmm. You have to create a container first with where bodies are beginning to condition with other bodies, other like bodies. So the things that we've ingested about white body supremacy, about, about massage noir, about sexism, about transphobia, about all of these different pieces can be, can be, inquired into without the white gaze, G-A-Z-E. It has to be done where communities of culture, both interculturally, interculturally, can begin to work these pieces that we've ingested, that vertically were, 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 were brutalized into us, raped into us, and, and, and religious into us. Right, we have to be able to do that and work with those pieces. And white bodies have to be, have a different process that they have to go through. White bodies collectively cannot conceive of a free black woman because they haven't had to collectively. White bodies have very little racial uh, agility or acuity collectively to deal with the collective brutalization that happened when whiteness became 
of the standard order of the day. Mm -hmm. There's so much I could say, but I know that you have consistently loved on Black women in public. And all my sister friends are here supporting me today. And I want you to just lift that up some more right here and right now, because I think there's a, what I've read and what I've heard you say, there's a particular power and role that Black women have in the liberation of yes. the people. And there's a yes. particular vulnerability that we yes. have as well. And so yeah. just, yeah. I'll, I'll be loved on for a moment. Yeah. So I got a friend of mine who who has this thing um, that she does called uh, the NAP ministry. Yes. The NAP Ooh, ministry. That saved my life. I'm not going to sit with you. Rest Listen. resistance. It's a monster in my office now. Yes. I love, I love the NAP ministry, right? Yes. Because what it says is it's giving particularly Black women permission to NAP. Right, the black woman's body has been a the uh, has been the the white the white body for the last four hundred years in this country has had now think about this think about this the white body has had full and unfettered access to every orifice understanding and part of my body. Think about that. For most of our history, the white body has had full and unfettered access to my body and my people's bodies. Now that's an obvious, that's obvious, there's an obvious difficulty in that for black, brown, and indigenous bodies. But it also creates a bottleneck for white bodies because collectively white bodies expect my deference. Mm -hmm. They expect my um, my allegiance. That has been what has been acculturated in them, right? They expect me to move off of the sidewalk when they're walking. They expect me to 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 not. To be a, to, to, they expect black women not to have their own sense of who they are in the workplace. They, I mean, that is an because that's the way it has, it has been acculturated within the white community. That expectation, and so, and so, I believe that you know, there's a there's a show that I watch. I watch a lot of horror shows. My wife doesn't understand how I do that and do this trauma work. But but I watch shows like Stranger Things. In the Stranger Things, there's this there's this thing called the upside down, right? The upside down is exactly the same way the world is right now, but it's upside down. Everything is turned upside down, right? And I believe as I believe black women are living in the upside down and have lived in the upside down, right? Because I believe that when when creation emerged forth, the first representation of humanness on this planet, it was a woman, a black woman in Africa first. And the mitochondrion of that woman is in everybody that we know right now on this planet, right? But you would, if you looked at the position of the black woman on this planet, you would think that is exactly the opposite, <laughs> right? And that, and that, and that the black woman is the is the is the uh, the Johnny come lately of the human experience. And and so for me, every chance I get, I want to say we don't get better as a species by the black woman being in a position in which she is not the, the 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 basic conduit for human life on this planet but that she is the last to be considered and so in my work that's why i always try and uplift and put black women in a certain light right in which i don't ask for permission i don't i i, I don't I don't need, like somebody, I've had people come up to me, well, what about white women? What about them? I'm not talking about them. They are not in consideration of the work 
in terms of liberation of Black people in particular and the liberation of the human species in general, that's not, I, I, I'm, that is not a consideration. White women and white men and, 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 and anybody housed in a white body, fine. But I get to say for me, what is most important and what is most salient and what's most important to people that have loved me, that have nurtured me, that have conditioned me, that I learned the most from have been Black women. And I think Black women are the only way we're going to ever see ourselves um, to true liberation. And so that's why I start with Black women. I don't believe DEI is going to do it. I believe, I believe, I believe, just like you, sis, you're the vice president, and I'm not asking you to, to answer this question, but you're the vice president of DEI. I, I, without you even telling me another word, I know you got less than five staff. I know that, I know that, I know that, 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 that you being in that position, the university or organizations have a tendency to put a black, brown, or indigenous body in that position underfund them and then run 400 years of trauma through them to try and get them to rectify things that the, that the organization continues to resist at every turn. And I believe that DEI is, is, is a way, diversity, equity, inclusion is really about centered around white comfort. And I believe the operational piece of DEI needs to, I believe those letters actually need to be reconfigured and it should spell D-I-E because it, because it withers and kills and, and, and attacks the spirit of the people that are trying to do that work without giving them, without helping them develop an understanding that really D, uh, DEI is really about how do you get white people to come into a room long enough to learn some glossary terms and really is not about the liberation of people. That's my opinion. That's not Rachel's opinion. That's my opinion. Good. Well, you're right. I'm at work right now. So. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, going back to where you sort of started, it's why the Nat Ministry and Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hershey, that book, is so important. Right. And like I said, right. why it's become a mantra among sure. my office and other Black women and body women of culture, Indigenous right. bodies within higher ed. It doesn't matter. You could be at a tech company or whatever. Right. It's so important for us to claim for ourselves. That's exactly right. And that's exactly. a different kind of trauma work too, because we inter yep. we have internalized that's all right. of that oppression. Right. You know, I want to get back. Can, uh, can, go ahead. Can I just yeah, say one piece about, on. about the rest piece? So, so, so the 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 reason why rest for a black, indigenous, or brown body is revolutionary is because. Um, uh, the black, brown, and indigenous body is where America has been trained to do its dirt. It is to put all of the all of the work on the body of black bodies and brown bodies and indigenous bodies, right? And so it is an act of resistance for a black body, a black film body, a black female body to go. I am going to nap. I am going to rest. I am going to do like the act of that is a revolutionary act because the because this whole structure says that black black women should override rest, should override centering themselves in their own health, in their own re not rest in order to do work, rest to rest because your people could not rest because the, the fatigue that you feel and that you experience is not tiredness. It is brutalization. It is violence. It is what has been, it is trauma. And the reason why you need to rest is to heal, not in order. The reason why you need to rest is to heal. It is not so you can be more productive in the work for you. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that's something we also have to unlearn for ourselves. That's right. exactly. So y'all get the book. I, I want to go back to your book, which you quote so many journalists and authors, and you offer so many resources in that book. So I highly recommend that folks uh, get uh, The Quaking of America. I've been wanting to talk to you about this since 
since I, you know, sort of worked my way through the book. On the one hand, you know, you kind of slap folks awake that look, if you can't read the signs, which many of us can, and we have for generations for our mere survival mm-hmm. of, of a, a pretty imminent civil war or continuation mm-hmm. of like the amount of violence that is mm-hmm. erupting. I read the other day that um, some folks were arrested because they wanted to throw off the power grid in Baltimore yep, yep, to create yep. chaos. So it's this guerrilla warfare. So as I read your book, on the one hand, there's this nonviolent approach. Get in your body so you can discern and you can act accordingly. And it may save your life and your family's life, you know, uh, just by by being in your body, in a healed body, in a body that is the signals it gives, it sends and receives are not distorted by trauma in a sense. Exactly. But then I have to tell you, As I as as I, I read the way that you pull together the headlines and all of these authors and resources, I'm I'm wondering like, do I need to go like learn take some self defense courses and yes. be able to shoot a gun? Yes. Like, yes. right. So yes. it's, it can we have both nonviolence yes. and yes. prepare for arms? Yes, Talk nonviolence does not nonviolence does not mean not protection. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I want to be clear. Nonviolence does not mean you don't understand that you are in a you are in a structure by which people want to murder you simply because of your pigmentation right and so for me i wrote that book as a very sober understanding of 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 what it is that i see as what gets in the way of us protecting ourselves and what gets in the way of us understanding that this is a feral structure to bodies of culture and black bodies. 60%, we have, we have between 55 and 60% of this population as, is white bodies, right? If, if, if racism, if we wanted to change racism, white bodies could change it overnight. If, 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 if they didn't have a self-interest that was more in, in the currency of whiteness. But that is not what what we have. White bodies understand that it is an advantage, not a privilege. I take that off. It is not a privilege in a structure by which the white body deems and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured. In a philosophically and structurally, in a system like that, it is not a it, it is not a um a a, a, a benefit. Um, or it is not a privilege to be in a white body. In a structure like that, it is a distinct advantage to be in a white body. And so for me, I as I'm watching people walk around in the loosening of gun laws, uh, in Florida, you could in Texas, you could just put a gun on your hip. You ain't got to t- say nothing to nobody, right? To say, to, to, and, and they're trying to blow up uh, 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 grids in Baltimore and all over the country. I mean, this is not the first time yeah. we're, we're, we're right. And in, in order to have chaos and, and we're watching this stuff and we're what, and we know that large swaths of police have white supremacist uh, 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 and 3%ers and Ku Klux Klan and people who align themselves with that as police officers, right? We know that, you know, you could be a police officer with less than two years of, of, of degree in college and all that different type of stuff. But yet these people have dominion over people's lives. Right. And so and so um, the reason why I talked about like some of the how do you do what's the what's the both the communal work and the individual work you can do to be able to hone your intelligences so you can have more to you available to you than just your cognition, right? But I'm also practical. I mean, there's a story that's out today about the black farmer in Colorado who's just minding his own business, and yet he's he's got a thousand acres acres of land, and these white folks are killing his cattle. They 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 have set. They have set cameras up around his house filming him, and then he gets stuff. He gets death threats simply for being a farmer with a thousand acres of land in Colorado, right? 
that the white body sees itself as dominion collectively over black bodies, even 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 if it's unvoiced, it sees itself as at any point being deputized to monitor the black body. And so I wanted to be very sobering in this book and say, you may need to start thinking about how you work them hands if you have to work them hands. Right. You may need to. I'm no longer at a place where I say, you know, black people should know the black people should 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 responsibly know how to work a weapon responsibly. I'm not saying just throw them out and blah, blah, blah. I'm saying we need to we need to understand how to be safe with guns. We need but we need to. Uh, I come from a family that's had guns our whole life, both illegally and <laughs> legally. I had my grandfather hunted rabbits, all, you know, all of that different type of stuff. Right. And, and my grandfather was in World War Two and all of this different type of stuff. Right. And, and so uh, my brother's a, pol a police officer. Right. I, I, I was over and up again. I, I know how to work weapons. I don't think there's anything wrong with the average black person understanding how they work. Right. Because it's going to be too late. You can see the winds of this country moving more and more towards totalitarianism. So, you know, big, like, like having one strong man at the top and then everybody else has got to get along, you know, get along, to, you know, get along. And so in that type of situation, you don't want to not be able to take care of your family and your community and survive whatever's coming next. I would rather have the knowledge than not have the knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you raise a contradiction in that, right? Because so many people use guns irresponsibly and they definitely want to get it out of the hands of like organized crime or, you know, just people using weapons irresponsibly, there's a huge push toward, you know, reducing guns, which is in contradiction to what's actually happening. Because I've read other articles right. and talked to people where pretty much all the ammunition has been bought up by, by white men, right? Absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. you're, is it too late? Why don't we get off guns? No, no, no. Let me finish. Okay, finish. It's, it's not too late to make yourself more knowledgeable. Never That's what I'm talking about. Should I learn how to operate a weapon? I haven't decided if I want to own one, but it wouldn't That's hurt to know. It wouldn't how hurt to... to know what to do. Yes. And when and some of the people that are listening to me and talk, like they're probably screaming at the top of their lungs, like no. But I, but 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 I would have I would say just like what you said, militias are buying up the ammunition. What do you think they're doing that for? People are trying to blow up. The, the electrical grid. What do you what do you think right. they're doing that for? I'm I'm not I'm not landing on any philosophy that's going to put me or my family in in more danger than they should be had we had knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. I just need to take a breath. Maybe the audience does on that, and Let's everybody can decide can for themselves. You know. Oh, there's right. a. There's so many things and um, there are white people in the audience right now listening saying, that's not me, I'm not that. And in your book, this is getting back to the, the question before we started talking about black women. You describe like the levels of the pigmentocracy overlaid by other types of identity. So for example, if you are in a white body and you happen to be Muslim or Jewish, you're down at the bottom with the Black and Indigenous folks. If you are in a gender nonconforming or transgender body that happens to also be a white body. So could you talk more about identity yeah. Yeah. And, and like... And body. Yes, and body. Yes. Right. So so I'm, I'm very clear. So, so I've been doing this work now, um, you know, work in terms of race and things like that for at least 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. recently that people know who the hell I am. But I've been doing this work a long time, right? And one of the things that I see keep happening when we talk about liberation and, and, and creating a infrastructure, a living embodied anti-racist infrastructure is take the white body. We, white bodies, when we're doing this work, 
haven't created enough or any collective stamina or agility when it comes to race specifically, right? I'm not talking about anything else. I'm talking about race specifically. And so what they, a lot of times, good meaning white bodies, what they end up doing is thinking that niceness and kindness is the same thing as liberation. Mm-hmm. And it is not. I don't want you to spit in my food. I don't want you to call me the N-word. I don't want you, right? I don't want you to do any of that stuff. But if you think that that, that you not doing that is a proper redress for the level of brutality and weathering and withering that happens on my body on a daily basis, you're sadly mistaken. That is inadequate. It's nice and it's inadequate, right? And so, and so really for me, when I'm talking about these pieces, I'm saying, look, um, uh, um, black, the, the march towards Black people moving towards liberation, right? There has been a certain configuration that has been a mis, a mass miseducation to white bodies that my liberation means your, means your downfall, right? And what I'm saying is you have to actually create what liberation means for you and your people and white people in order so so that stuff can be dealt with. So when we do begin to talk about what liberation means for all of us, we're actually speaking the same language. Because if you're not doing that work with other white, with 60, 55 to 60% of the population, if you're continuing to push the same mismatch education into white kids and white bodies, this is never going to work itself out. And so, um, so that's the way I think. You know, we're talking about an anti-racist culture. There's some very specific language around anti-racism in the in the institution that I work in, in higher ed in general. There's this talking. Uh, Ibram uh, Kendi talked about it being, you know, like addressing the system. Mm-hmm. Is it a utopia? Will we ever get there? No. You know, like no. in our lifetime or ever, mm. like how is it realistic to uh, that we actually can undo all of this white body supremacy and um, live happily ever after? And if not, what should we be striving for? Yeah, I don't believe if we're looking for Shangri-La and we're looking for like Nirvana or something like that when it comes to race, put it this way. It's going to, so it took us four and 500 years to get into this mess. What makes you think it's not going to take four or 500 years to get us out of this mess? This stuff, this, this, like, even, even, even calling, even talking about what happened to indigenous people and people doing what they did on, on having a more of an ownership mentality as opposed to when we talk about indigenous people, more of a stewardship mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, calling white body settlers is is a frame, is a softer frame in order to get white bodies in the room and talking about um, talking about what actually is in a way that won't leave that won't make them run out of the room, right? Because to the indigenous body, white bodies were not settlers. To the African, to the black body, white bodies were, were not settlers. There was nothing to settle, right? What they were, were people who benefited and got given land that was in which people and animals and ancestors were genocided off of. But, and this is, this is why I don't, when I talk about DEI, when you're talking about diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, diversity, the first question I ask when people talk to me about that is I ask, diverse from what? If you don't ask that question, then what ends up happening is that diversity can mean collard green Tuesday, fried bread Wednesday, you know, chop suey Thursday. Right? It, can, it can mean very aesthetic types of things. If you don't say that what we're saying when we say diversity 
is that we are diversifying from the concept and from the idea that the white body is the standard of humanness. If you don't say that, then it can mean anything, right? And that, and that we're saying that we're diversifying from that idea. You have never been to a DEI training where they said that. Right? I have now. Yeah, I I'm in but that's why, yes. that's why we have to be clear as, as black, brown, and indigenous people. We may not, we still may need to send our babies to school. We still may need to pay these bills and all that stuff. But understand that that piece that you're more than that says that that diversity, that diversity for me means I'm diversifying and want it both internally and, and, and externally and organizationally from the idea that the white body is the standard and that and and and, and that I'm, we're diversifying from that notion at all levels if 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 you're more than that you have to stay more than that and realize that your organization is not more than that that is not that is not their vantage point their vantage point is not your liberation but they will say that their vantage point is your liberation and so for me we have to be clear in ourselves that I'm going to get this check <laughs> and then I'm going to build with people outside of this organization to put pressure on, on, the, uh, on uh, the institutions to change and be more responsive to the communal um, ways of being and cultivating more communal ways of being. Not transactional, but community development and communal development. I have one last question that I want to ask you just to bring it all together using your imagination. If you had a giant billboard or as many as you wanted that you could place anywhere or everywhere, you know, reaching millions, billions, United States globally, what would that billboard say? What would you put on that billboard? Black women were the first representation of humanness on this planet. What impact do you think that would have on people driving with their black daughters, taking them to school on just what you did, just what, what you did, what you did on this call. You said, brother, can you talk? You center black women a lot. And then you took your hands and you went back and you said, I need some loving on, right? That's what it would do. Everything else, black women will take care of. Everything else, uh, um, in terms of, in terms of black women having a sense that they are tied to creation itself. And if black women believe that and, um, and, uh, and take naps and, and put, right, that will, I believe that's where the healing starts. Just thank you for your tenderness, brother. You mm. know, it takes a special human being to uh, be a, a warrior, which you mm. are in your writing and, and literally, um, and uh, also be tender with vulnerable populations, with black women, Mm. And um, I just appreciate you. You just um, got my heart right there. Mm. Love you, sis. We, we're doing Love this together. We, we, yeah. we ain't doing this by ourselves. We're doing this together. So I, I appreciate mm -hmm. you. And it's messy and imperfect. And That's exactly we right. We may not see the promised land. We probably That's don't. Right. But we still We keep that. going. We keep yeah. going. Rest Minicum, I am so grateful for the way that the ancestors have worked through you mm -hmm. using your body, your voice, your power to bring light to this world, to bring light to our hearts and minds, mm -hmm. the things we need to pay attention to for our survival and for envisioning a future that is healed and whole for Black and Indigenous bodies. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. I just send you protection because mm, you. how you started that book that I read, you know, like I imagined you could be a target as well. So I am a target. When Obama was elected yeah. and they, all of the church folks, I, yeah. bless, I'm laying hands on you, you. for your protection you. so that you could continue this work. And just thank you uh, again to your ancestors. I honor them 
and their strength mm. and their courage for working through you in the way that they have and for bringing us together today. I honor mm. everyone who's present, their, their ancestors, because they've brought us together. However, you're responding to this conversation, uh, no matter what your body or identity, our ancestors brought us together for uh, our, our healing. And so I mm. thank and honor everyone else's ancestors as well and my own. Mm. Ashe. And so Ashe. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.